Number eight, the consequences, we're talking about the consequences of non-expositional preaching. And we've gone through a number of things just to sort of review for the sake of those who uh, may see this at a future time or hear it. Uh, non-expositional preaching usurps the authority of God over the mind. It, in, it interrupts the lordship of Christ over his church. It hinders the work of the Holy Spirit. It demonstrates pride and a lack of submission to Scripture. It severs the preacher personally from the regular sanctifying work of Scripture. It removes spiritual depth and transcendence from the people crippling worship. Number seven, it prevents the preacher from fully developing the mind of Christ critical to his work. Just a footnote on that one before we go to number eight. One of the most important verses that Paul ever penned is in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. That is not a mystical statement that somehow we can discern some secret information from the Lord about our lives or about direction or about guidance. That is an absolute statement of fact. We have the mind of Christ. In other words, we know how he thinks. How do we know that? Because we have the word. Here is the mind of Christ. That verse is not an invitation to try to find out what the Lord is thinking. We have the mind of Christ. The natural man understands not the things of God, their foolishness to him, but we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit has given us an understanding of this book. He has authored the book. That's what that whole section is about. Uh, no man knows what's uh, in a man but the spirit of the man, so no man knows the truth of God except the Spirit of God, and he's revealed those things to us, spiritual words in Spiritual thoughts and spiritual words, we have the mind of Christ, okay? So if I want the mind of Christ, then, then I'm going to have to go to the Word of God to discern the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is what I want to know. And if I don't dig down into the Word of God, I cannot know the mind of Christ, and thus I cannot know His will for the work that I've been called to do. Some of you may have written a, read a book I wrote called Slave, uh, a, a little while back, and I think that is probably um, one of the great tragedies of the evangelical translations is the obscuring of the word doulos in so many of the English translations and still going on. Even in the new ESV, they refuse uh, to translate doulos by the word slave. And when I watched a video that was having, there were, in which there was a discussion of the translators, they said there's too much baggage attached to that word. That's what they said in their committee meeting. This was a video of the committee meeting, too much baggage with the word. Uh, consequently, we don't understand that, that, that we are all, as believers, called to be slaves of Christ, and, uh, and we are sort of the archetypal slaves, aren't we? Uh, we model that. Uh, so knowing the mind of Christ is critical to his work. Number eight, a failure to do expositional preaching depreciates by example the spiritual duty and priority of personal Bible study. It depreciates by example the spiritual duty of and priority of personal Bible study. Is personal Bible study important? Is it essential? 
Do we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Even Jesus answered temptation by quoting Scripture as his defense. Is it important for us to know the mind of Christ, the will of God? Then Bible study is critical for us. Reading the Word, explaining the Word, applying the Word is a duty of every believer. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, um, Be diligent to be approved of God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That is written to Timothy. But Timothy is not the end of that in the church. He's the beginning of that. He's the model of that. I often say, even to our people, that I not, I not only want to teach you what the Bible means by what it says, but I want to teach you how I came to that conclusion. Because you need to be able to come to that conclusion as well. In other words, it's important in expositional preaching that there is built into your exposition an apologetic element. They need to know the process. You know, the people at Grace Church at this point would trust me to tell them what the Bible means without defending it. They, they trust me enough that if I said that this means that, they'd say, okay. But, but the reason they trust me on that is because I have dragged them so relentlessly through the process of how I came to that conclusion for so many years that they know the process. What I demonstrate for them on a Sunday is exactly what I want them to do. I want them to read the Scripture, to come to grips with the words, the phrases, the grammar, the definitions. I want them to go to their concordance and other resources and find cross-references that enrich and explain and enhance and embellish. I want them to find passages in Scripture that illustrate this truth I want them to know that if these are the various options, this is why this one can't be right, and this is why this one is the, the option of choice. I want them to be in the process because I want them to learn to study the Bible for themselves. If all I ever do is tell stories and pontificate and come up with things that are some kind of ingenious expressions of my own cleverness, they are completely without an example of what it means to do what they need to be doing, and that is studying the Word of God. The people who sit under exposition will reproduce the approach to Scripture that they see modeled in front of them. If you uh, send your little children to uh, the third grade class on a Sunday morning, someone will explain the meaning of the Bible to them. If you send your kids to the junior high department, Kelly Wright will get up and do an exposition of Scripture. If they go to the high school department and hear Andrew, they will have the Bible exposited to them. If they go to the Crossroads ministry with the college department and Austin stands up, he will explain the Word of God to them because this is what we are teaching them to do. It's not about oratory and cleverness. It's about modeling and demonstrating how to study the Bible. 
truthfully, they need its sanctifying influence in their lives on a daily basis. Agreed? You can't expect them to wait from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. At the same time, when you explain the Bible in its depth and richness, you build their confidence in the Word of God. You also, you, you give them, uh, you give them, I, I use the word, and maybe it's not the best word, but you give them an actually a transcendent spiritual experience in the Word. People are sitting in church and, and you're teaching the Word of God and it's coming to life and they're seeing it and understanding it and rejoicing in it and they, the, there's the joy of it. Sunday, a girl came up to me, a young girl, after uh, just going through the book of Esther Sunday night and she had tears running down her cheeks and she put her, her hand on my, on my arm and she said, I don't even have words to thank you for the experience that I've just had in my heart through the book of Esther. She was just overwhelmed with joy in the fact that she could trust that God was ordering providentially every detail of her life. I don't even know what the details were. I don't know what they were. But she knew that the Word had turned her sorrow to joy. And she also knows that she can go to the Word of God herself. She can go back to the book of Esther. She can read that and renew that same joy. You're teaching people how they can do that in their own lives with the Bible in front of them. That, that is, of course, the compelling reason why <clears throat> back in 1996 we, we produced the MacArthur Study Bible uh, so that people could read their Bible and understand their Bible because of what it does in their own lives. People never learn to study the Bible effectively unless they see it modeled for them. And let me tell you something. As, a, as an author, there is no end to the demand from publishers for soundbite books. I, I could literally produce a dozen books a year. I could produce one every month and publishers would line up for little bits, little pieces of devotional data that don't take more than 90 seconds. There's no end to that stuff. In fact, if I don't write them, they'll, they'll, they're like piranhas. They'll attack something I have written and turn it into that. And I, I'll be sitting at home and some box will come to my house and it's a new devotional book by me that I didn't even write. <laughs> I didn't even write it. What is this? Where did this come from? There's no end to the, 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 the little soundbite, think lightly kind of approach. That's, that's kind of the spirit of the age. I, I guess in some ways, you know, you, you, you say, okay, it's kind of a starter approach, but it's, it's worrisome and it's bothersome to me. People need to learn to study the Word of God carefully and thoughtfully, and you're going to be the person who models that for them. And they're going to see the product of that, the joy, the blessing, the conviction, the soul-searching, the worship, all that comes, all the good that comes when the Spirit of God quickens the heart in response to the truth. 
So you are the model of how to handle the Word of God. You are the model student of the Bible. In a sense, I might say this. You model how they are to, to handle the Word of God. You, you, you model what they will do in a devotional sense by what you do even in your pulpit. And that's why, as I was saying earlier, there needs to be a sense in which you display the process. You don't want to get caught up in, uh, you know, rambling on about Greek and Hebrew and all the technical things. You can make references to them when it's important or helpful or when it demonstrates that you've done your homework occasionally and when it makes sense. But more importantly, they will learn how to study the Bible from you. Let me give you a second thing. And it's on this same point. Until they do that, they will be incapable of teaching it. Until they learn how to study it, they will be incapable of teaching it. So let me tell you something. The greatest dearth in the contemporary churches in our time is the utter absence of Bible teachers. You go to the typical church, mega church, seeker-friendly church, um, whatever kind of church, emerging church, evangelical, cool rock and roll church with a rock and roll pastor, and you won't find Bible teachers. When I grew up, there were always there were always men in the church with dog-eared Bibles. Remember, Steve? Yeah. They were the Bible teachers in the church. They, they, many of them had a hobby horse, might have been prophecy, might have been some, something in the Old Testament. They were the Bible teachers in the church. They loved the Word of God. They learned to teach the Word of God from the way their pastors taught them. And you had a force of people teaching the, the Scripture. And adults went to, to Sunday school classes and, and these men who loved the Word of God and had learned to study the Word of God and teach the Word of God were the lay people who were the Bible teachers in the church. You can't find that now. You can't, you can't find those people. Because what's going on up front is theatrical. And even the preaching is some kind of theater in so many cases. You can't produce Bible teachers in that. What produces Bible teachers is people who know how to study the Word of God, whose hearts get on fire and they want to proclaim it and they want to use it. And if you look at Grace Church, what you see is this is just a mass of people who want to teach the Bible. That's why you're here. The seminary is nothing but a, but, but, but a part of Grace Community Church. You're here. You're right in Grace Community Church right now. You're, you're, you're locked down in the middle of Grace Community Church. You're surrounded by people who know how to study the Bible and who want to teach the Bible. And they, they teach it in prisons and classes and home Bible studies and, and, and they go to old age homes even. They, they do whatever they can. They teach uh, Sunday school classes, youth groups. There's a proliferation of people who teach the Bible. And that all comes back to what you do in the pulpit. If you, if you make the Word of God alive in the pulpit, and if you have a dynamic teaching ministry, you're teaching them how to teach, and when they learn how to teach, guess what? They're going to want a class. And that allows you to expand the impact of the teaching of the Word of God. Okay, let's go to number nine. 
The failure to do expositional preaching prevents the preacher from being the voice of God on every issue of his time. You know, as Jeremiah 8, 9, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so uh, what kind of wisdom do they have? Remember that? If you know your Bible, you can be the voice of God on every issue. You know, I, I lived this for many years when I used to be on Larry King. Any of you ever see any of those things on Larry King? I lived this. And I sat there with ministers, sometimes evangelical ministers, who didn't know enough about the Bible to even answer the current issues that we were talking about. I want to speak on the issues. I'm, I'm waiting for somebody else to give me an audience. I'm ready. I'm ready to talk about gay marriage. That's an oxymoron. As Steve says, like postal service and army intelligence. <laughs> gay marriage? That's an oxymoron. That's not marriage. I'm ready. I'm ready to speak on any issue, on any issue that the culture faces, I can give a biblical perspective. How important is that, to be ready to give to every man an answer for the hope that is within you? Um, you need to be a biblical expert, and you can't get that by looking up illustrations in an illustration book. You want to be able to address every issue. It all started for me when 9-11 hit, and Larry King called me and he said, what's the main lesson of that? And I said, you're going to die and you don't know when. That's right. Where did I get that? Luke 13. Tower fell on a bunch of people and they died. And, and they said to Jesus, why did this happen? And Jesus says, you better repent or you're also going to perish. I just took his message. You're going to die and you're not in charge of when. You better be ready. And then he asked me the second question. What about the little baby in there? What happened to that baby? Instant heaven. Instant heaven. I had worked through that issue of the death of a child and wrote a little book uh, called uh, Safe in the Arms of God to articulate that conviction in my heart. You know, that makes you a valuable um, spokesman for the truth. And it takes time and effort to come to grips with those kinds of issues. You need to be ready. If anybody does, you do. You know, I, I cringe, of course, when I hear them interview certain people who claim to be ministers and, and give the wrong answer to all the questions. It's just sad. What's really sad is the representatives of Christianity are not real true pastors, to say anything of Bible teachers. These, these popular sort of transcendent figures in, in the evangelical world made transcendent by media exposure are the last people that ought to be articulating things on behalf of Christianity. You can start with people like Charles Colson who got us in horrendous trouble confusing everybody about whether Catholicism and Protestant Christianity were or were not the same thing in the ECT issue. And that's just one illustration. So, 
you want to be sure that you're the voice of God in every issue of your time. And there are many that come down the line. You need to have thought them through very, very well. There's a guy came up to me Sunday uh, in our church, and he said, um, I'm having uh, regular conversations with Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote the book on the Manson murders. He was the DA in L.A. when that happened. And uh, he's having some serious problems believing in God. He's actually written a book on atheism. Bugliosi has. And uh, this man in our church has been talking to him a lot. And he said his big problem is evil. His big problem is if there's God, why does Manson exist? And why do these things happen? And based on that, he's asking questions about God. You know, it's the old conundrum. If God is all-powerful, why didn't he stop it? If he's not all-powerful and can't stop it, then we have to redefine what it means to be God. Either he's impotent and can't stop it, or he's indifferent and chooses not to stop it. That, that particular dilemma is a very widespread one in our culture. How do you answer that? Where do you go to answer that? This transcends your week-to-week exposition, but, it, but your week-to-week exposition of Scripture will yield a coherent study of that. So I said, well, what did you tell him? He said, I, I listened to the message you gave on why evil why God allows evil in the world. And I put that all together in the printed form and I gave it to him. Well, that's a resource. You know, we have to be, we have to be able to target in on these compelling questions. And this, again, is adult church, big boy church, not little kid church, not superficiality, not just waltzing people along with their emotions. And you need to be able to be the voice of God on every issue in your time, and then wait till God gives you opportunity to express that truth. All right, number 10. Number 10, a failure to do expositional preaching breeds a congregation as weak and indifferent to the glory of God, listen to this, as the preacher is. If you don't do expositional preaching, if you don't give your people the eternal, powerful Word of God, you breed a congregation that is weak and indifferent to the glory of God, the honor of God, the honor of Christ. Another way to say that was you diminish their adoration, you diminish their love, you diminish their affection. You redirect people away from the glory of God, away from the glory of Christ, away from even the glory of the Spirit, away from the majesty of Scripture. And that would be the last thing you would want to do, right? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you want at the end of everything, sola, dea, gloria? Just um, finished editing an introduction of a new book. Uh, on the Holy Spirit. I did a series on the abuse of the Holy Spirit and it's going to be a book and it's going to be finished at least out of my hands by January. And uh, it is going to be 
the latest attack on the false church of, of the charismatic movement. And the, the premise behind the whole thing is an intolerance of the massive abuse of the Holy Spirit that has gone on. Uh, some of you may have been here when I gave that series, but the premise of the series is this. In, the, uh, in the Matthew chapter 12, Jesus accused the Pharisees of attributing to Satan the work of the Spirit. Remember that? Okay. What the modern charismatic movement has done is attribute to the Spirit the work of Satan. You just flipped that. And I, I made the point in the series that it, it is amazing to me that if anybody attacks the Father, the evangelical world rises up in, in protest. You know, when somebody writes a book that, that calls God into question like the openness theology, then everybody jumps on the bandwagon, the Gospel Coalition rises, people start writing books to defend the, the, the omniscience of God uh, against the, the attack of these people who diminish the glory of God. Anybody touches Christ, anybody attacks the deity of Christ, we, we go after them. Uh, anybody attacks the Gospel, we create organizations together for the gospel, the gospel coalition, on and on and on. All the reformed guys that are out there defending the Son of God and His cross work. And I ask the question, where's the defense of the Holy Spirit? Where is that? He is being monstrously abused in the charismatic movement. The work of Satan is being attributed to him. Benny Hinn is a false teacher. Trinity Broadcasting is a haven of false teachers. And if you think it's bad here, you ought to go to Africa or Latin America. The misrepresentations of the Holy Spirit are wholesale across the planet, and they're getting away with murderous blasphemies against the Holy Spirit. So I just fired all that out in about 13 weeks. I felt a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm just saying, where, where, where is the outrage? Come on. So I ended the introduction by saying, okay, all you reformed guys, why don't you act like reformers? And why don't you demonstrate the same outrage against heresy and the dishonor of God that the reformers would have? And I ended it, sola dea gloria. So I will see if they react. I mean, how can you sit and let the misrepresentation, the abuse, the blasphemy, the grieving, the quenching, the mocking of the Holy Spirit with this horrible stuff? False miracles, false doctrine, false gospels. How can you not be literally um, overwhelmed with rage, with holy indignation? Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The reproaches that fall on you have fallen on me. So, you know what it did? It acted, you know, my people know this, but that's, that just activates, that just activates me in a great way. You know, I wrote the Charismatics, then I wrote Charismatic Chaos, and I've tried to deal with that through the years. And, and when I reach a point where I, I'm boiling, another book comes. And so that's this book. By the way, we haven't thought of a title yet. I've got one they won't use, Plucking the Dove. But, but if any of, 
if, if any of you come up with a good title along the line of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the introduction itself is, is very, very strong. But I'm only using that as an illustration, men. Look, I am driven to the defense of the glory of God, right? And the glory of Christ and the glory of the Spirit. And that rises out of what I understand to be the truth of Holy Scripture. Bad theology dishonors God. False doctrine, heresy, the false church, rampant false church, false claims, false miracles, all of this falling over, screaming, barking like dogs, laughing, collapsing in a heap, all of this is not of the Holy Spirit. You know that. But where's the outrage? We're afraid to offend somebody. We've been backed into a corner in the name of tolerance. I want a congregation that is not indifferent to the glory of God. I want a congregation that is not weak in its understanding of doctrine. Otherwise, it can't protect itself. What amazes me is that these people flourish and become filthy rich because people send them money. If they just didn't send them any money, they'd all go away. But Satan makes them successful. Number 11, another important consideration with regard to expository preaching on the negative side, failure to do it robs people of their only true source of help. Their only true source of help. And maybe you could just, you know, camp on 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, and he goes through those things and then says that the man of God may be complete, whole, mature, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's a technical title, man of God, used only twice in the New Testament, both times of Timothy, used about 70 times in the Old Testament, and always to speak of a prophet or one who spoke for God. So admittedly, the Word of God perfects the man of God. That's, that's us. The Word of God perfects the man of God. It thoroughly furnishes us for all good works. What that means is that, again, it, it's, it's building on the point that the Word is the source of sanctification the Spirit uses. When you give your people the exposition of Scripture, when you give them the Word of God, you give them their true source of help. Their true source of help. They cannot be dependent on you. They cannot be dependent on your cleverness, your insights. They have to be able to go to the Word of God for themselves. That is essential to them living the Christian life and getting the help they need. You want to make them so familiar with the Word of God that they know where to go to find the help they need when they need it. Another way to say that would be this. If you don't give them the Word of God, then you lie to them about what they really need. I was listening last night to Ed Young sitting on his bed with his wife in his church in some kind of thing called sex pyramid. 
talking about sex and marriage and giving a long litany, and I don't know how long this went on, but I know they were sitting on their bed on the roof of the church for 24 hours. And then they brought the bed inside. I, uh, nonsense. They were talking about marriage and how to have a successful marriage, and it was utterly inane, utterly indifferent to Holy Scripture. It was this ridiculous, ludicrous, sophomoric banter between the two of them that provided no one any help at all. It was superficial. It was manipulative. It was dealing with... um, Superficial behaviors, that's never going to make a marriage successful. Never. The the depth and the truth of the Word of God and its sanctifying work on the soul is what people really need. Because until you are who you need to be before God, you'll never be who you need to be before your spouse. The exposition of of the Word of God the exposition of the Word of God gives people their only source of true help. And a failure to do that lies to them about what they really need. It lies to them about what they really need. Um, Let me see. This might be a good place to just stop for a minute and ask if you have any questions because I'm going to have to kind of reorganize this if I do some more tomorrow. Uh, Are we okay? Everybody up to speed? Any not extraneous questions but anything that's not clear? Okay. All right, let's go to another one. Um, This would be number... Well, okay, because I'm combining a few just for the sake of time. A failure to do expositional preaching puts the responsibility on the preacher to change people. Puts the responsibility on the preacher to change people. And I believe that there, many if not most preachers feel they sort of have the burden to do that. I would, uh, I would be in a mental institution if I believed that people's eternal destiny depended on me. I, I really would. That's way too much for me to handle. Uh, I'm, I, am, I am a Calvinist because that's a defensive posture. I don't want to be responsible for people's eternal destinies. I'm not, I'm not capable of bearing that burden on my back. Unfortunately, I don't have to. I can't even imagine being a pastor who does. How could you even live with that? I've been asked through the years, uh, does it bother you when people don't respond to the message? And I've often said, look, I'm not responsible for the response. I'm only responsible for the message. I can only bear so much weight. Being a pastor is a burden. It's an immense burden. It's uh, sometimes a joyous burden and sometimes a very painful burden. You know, the shortcomings, the longer you're in one place, the more they accumulate. 
surviving as long as I have in one church is really a testimony to the grace of God because I have failed on so many occasions, in so many ways, in so many people's lives that it's a wonder that I'm still here. Failed maybe to be sensitive to a death or, or an agonizing issue in a family or a wayward child or who knows what. Saying an insensitive word being distracted when somebody's telling me a painful story and I'm looking somewhere else because somebody else is coming after me and I demonstrate indifference. And, you know, there's a litany of, of all those kinds of things. So the, the, there's, there's weakness to be manifest, and the longer you're there, the more of it is manifest. Nobody, no, nobody thinks I'm waiting for the first vacancy in the Trinity. Not around here. Maybe out of town. Not around here. Um... I'm just an instrument. I think they understand that. I'm just the, the one the Lord has called to this responsibility. My responsibility is fully discharged in doing what I can to be an example and being faithful to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. At that point, my responsibility ends. And I think when you're preaching, that's you have to understand that. I don't need to... Uh, have the organ play and sing 14 verses of Just As I Am. I don't need to find clever mechanisms to get people to react. Uh, Rick Warren said in uh, The Purpose Driven Church that if he, could, uh, if he could touch a person's felt need, he can lead anyone to Christ. Really. I can't lead anyone to Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the work that he does through the Word. You can throw in all of the mechanisms that you want into your preaching, but they don't do the work. You can't bear that responsibility. But if you take the Scripture out, and it's just your shtick, and your cleverness, and your theater, and your personality then you have taken on yourself a useless burden, a useless responsibility that you can't possibly discharge. Say it another way, you need to be offensive when you preach, and you have to face that. The reason people set the Bible aside and the hard teachings of Scripture for the sort of mellow... Uh, sentimentalism that you hear from the contemporary preacher so often is because they don't want to offend anybody. And I, I go back to the classic illustration of Luke 4 where Jesus goes back to Nazareth and uh, he has ministered already in, uh, in the south in Judea for a year or so. And then he's come up and ministered in Capernaum and now he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth and the word has come back that the, this hometown boy has has set the country on fire in the south and even in Capernaum um, where he preached and did miracles. He comes back to Nazareth. He goes back to the, the synagogue he grew up in, right? Uh, everybody there would have known him. Uh, people were not mobile in those days. They stayed in their towns. Nazareth was a very small uh, provincial little town in an out-of-the-way part of Galilee on the north, uh, middle class to say the least. He went back, his friends, relatives, uh, coattail relatives, neighbors would have all been in that synagogue. 
They knew him. They grew up with him. Uh, they would never have known anything bad about him because there was nothing bad to know. And it must have been some talk in the town that he was different than every other child because he was there until he was 30 in a small town. He went back to his synagogue and this uh, wonderful child, this perfect child, this sinless child, went back to the people that knew him best. And he uh, stood up in the synagogue to preach. And do you remember what he said? He basically gave a sermon out of Isaiah 61 uh, that um, he said, the Messiah is here. I'm here. Uh, to open blind eyes, to set the captives free, deliver the oppressed, all of that. The poor, the prisoners, the blind and oppressed were now going to hear the good news. Salvation had come. And he preaches this sermon. And the sermon is not a positive sermon. He indicts the, the people in the synagogue and he says, you're, you're so bad. You're, you're like your forefathers in the past. God had to ignore them and go save a border terrorist. God had to ignore them and go provide for a, a widow who is in a Baal-worshipping town because he couldn't do anything among you because you're so apostate. You're just exactly the same as your forefathers. And so the good news of the gospel to the poor prisoners, blind and oppressed, you will not receive because you're just like your forefathers. And you remember how the, it ended? They tried to do what? Throw him off a cliff. Kill him. So if there had been a newspaper in Nazareth, it would have said the next day, hometown boy escapes mob violence. You know, this is, uh, this is the true responsibility of the preacher. To proclaim the truth you're not going to bear the responsibility before God of their response, but you are going to bear the responsibility of the accuracy of the message. Sometimes um, the question comes up, are you worried about what non-believers think about what you say? No, never. Are, are, are you concerned to be so blunt and so uh, bold and so confrontive when you know unbelievers are there? Uh, how about when you know there are many Catholics in your church and uh, because this is, there's a lot of Hispanics and Asians here who come from Catholic backgrounds, uh, does it bother you that what you say about Roman Catholicism may offend them? Absolutely not. You have Jewish people who come. This, this is a Jewish area. The synagogue is right out the door here. Um, does it bother you when people come that you talk about the Jews rejecting their Messiah, executing their Messiah, and being currently under divine judgment does it bother you that there might be Jews there hearing that? Absolutely not. Because my goal has nothing to do with saying something they want to hear. Right? There's nothing to do with that. Uh, all I'm trying to do is take the Word of God and make it clear what it says. And if, if they are the ones devastatingly confronted by that, so be it. You know, you start with Norman Vincent Peale, the progeny then goes to, from Norman Vincent Peale to uh, Robert Schuller, and, and then the, the primary, the most well-known student of Robert Schuller is Rick Warren. And in between, you can throw Bill Hybels, 
And they're all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to avoid offending people. And in avoiding the offense, they become responsible for failing to preach the truth. And in the end, avoiding the the offense doesn't achieve their ends because it is an illusion that you are the reason that someone is saved because of how you cast the message. So you proclaim the the word of God. And that puts the responsibility where it belongs on God to do his work in the heart. Thirteen? Would that work? Failure to do expositional preaching reduces the preacher's words to the level of everybody else's words. If it isn't, this is the word of God. God has said. Then the audience can pick and choose. Then how do you separate yourself from everybody else? You're just another voice. You understand what I'm driving at? You may come up with a clever way that you think you can articulate your message. But if it's not, this is the word of God, then you are reduced to the level of everyone else who has an opinion, an idea, a viewpoint, a theory, a religious insight, a perspective. That is so rampant in this culture that across the board in quote-unquote evangelicalism, people are unwilling to distinguish between theological and religious viewpoints. Embrace the Catholics. Embrace the Mormons. Let's not argue over doctrine. Um, Everybody has his own approach. You got your truth. I got my truth. As soon as you're not saying, this is the word of God, you're just another voice. You're just another person on parade for people to pick from. So what are are they going to use as the criteria to make their choice? Oh, they like you. Or the music's cool. Or the lighting is really cool. Or you don't offend them. Or they feel good. I'll tell you one thing. I don't want my words reduced to the words of everybody else because you happen to be living in a time when uh, opinions are more ubiquitous than they've ever been unimaginably so in the history of the world, right? You you go to the Internet and the opinions, I mean, it's got to be a cacophony that sickens the mind of God. You cannot just be another voice. You cannot be. You just can't be. You've got to be the voice of God. And it won't be popular with the other voices. It won't be. Benny Hinn got on television one night. He was talking about me and he said, if I had my way, I'd take my Holy Ghost machine gun and blow his brains out. Great. I got the right enemies. 
Really, that, that's a pretty aggressive approach to somebody with a differing view. I don't want to be just another voice. I, I don't want to be one voice among many voices. And people can pick and choose by what appeals to them. You don't ever want to reduce yourself to that. It's just, you, don't want to, you don't want to be in a popularity contest. Okay, uh, I think I'll give you one more and then uh, maybe, maybe we'll have time for two. The failure to do expositional preaching portrays an attitude of self-love rather than loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It portrays an attitude of self-love rather than loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can I say it another way? Whatever you love most will dominate your life. And whatever you love most will dominate your ministry. I don't want to walk in the pulpit and say, you know, the other day I was thinking, I want to walk in the pulpit and say, open your Bible. It's that simple. The failure to let the Word of God speak portrays an attitude of self-love rather than loving the Lord with all your heart. Whatever you love the most dominates your life. Whoever you love the most dominates your life. And thus your preaching is biblical, and Christ-centered. One more. This um, th- this is a an obvious one, but I think it's an important one for you to jot down. Failure to do expositional preaching creates a destructive disconnect between sound doctrine and life. Another way to say that, life imitates theology. Life imitates theology. You live what you believe. You live what you believe. The most controlling element of your life is your belief system. Now let me break that out a little bit. When we talk about theology, there are several elements to that. First, there is knowledge. Um, uh, First of all, it it all begins with knowledge. When I'm talking about theology, I'm talking about divine truth. Divine truth in any category, any aspect revealed in Scripture, any category of theology. It starts with knowledge. Very important. Knowledge. Cognition. To know the truth. So your task is to proclaim the truth so your people know it. That's where it starts. We call it I guess you could call it cognition. You, you know the truth. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning. The next step would be to believe the truth. Uh, you can tell people this is the truth. That Jesus is God. Uh, the Trinity is three in one. One person yet three. Uh, they, they can know that. They can hear that. That's, that's where it starts. But then it has to go from cognition to conviction. Okay, I believe that. I believe that. 
And, and that, that is an effort of the repeated instruction that comes from the Scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept, layer on layer, text on text, passage on passage, as the months and years go by. What they know becomes what they believe, and what they believe becomes a conviction. And that's, that's really where people live their lives, within the framework of their convictions. Well, not perfectly, because Paul says, I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. But nonetheless, the tendency and the direction of his life, if not the perfection of his life, is in the area of his convictions. So what you're trying to do is give people knowledge that produces convictions. Convictions about life. How you live life. And there's where I say life always imitates theology. I mean, you, can, you can hear a person in the world being interviewed about a, a homosexual relationship and uh, they're thrilled, they're happy, they're open, they're flagrant. Because they don't have any conviction that that's wrong. You can have people talk about their morality, immorality, celebrate their immorality because they don't have any conviction. We, we have a culture whose uh, sense of morality is, is in complete chaos because uh, the truth about life and morality is continually assaulted and overturned and reversed. Like, like Isaiah 5, they, they substitute sweet for bitter, light for dark. Everything is flipped. Um, the most outrageous person is the person who doesn't tolerate homosexuality. The most normal person is the person who is happy to have a child who is a homosexual. So everything gets flipped and reversed. And people live out their set of convictions. Why do you think a, a Muslim terrorist straps a bomb to himself and goes into a shopping center somewhere and blows up everybody in, uh, in the place because that is a conviction that I'm going to end up uh, you know, on a bunch of green pillows with 72 virg virgins having celestial sex forever. That's what drives that. It's a conviction. It's a belief. On the other hand, if I believe that God is honored and glorified and I will be blessed and rewarded in heaven to behave in a way that is godly, then that conviction drives what I do. But it doesn't even end there. What you're working for is cognition, an understanding of a truth, belief, which is the conviction of that truth, but ultimately you're going for affection. You're going for affection. To love that truth. And that's the long process. The pastoral ministry kind of starts with information, then becomes conviction, and eventually becomes affection. David says, oh, how I what? I love your law. And when you read like we were Sunday through Psalm 119, he's, the word love, delight, affection, desire, satisfaction. Um, I've lived that. I've lived from knowledge to affection through conviction. And that's what uh, John writes about in 1 John 2 when he talks about spiritual children who know the Father, sort of like Dada, that's all they know, that's just basic. They, 
They can still be tossed to and fro and cared about by every wind of doctrine. They know the Father. And then he talks about spiritual young men who have overcome the wicked one, have past tense already overcome the wicked one. How could that be true? Because they are strong in the word and have overcome the wicked one who disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan's operations 99% of the time are in false doctrine and error and deception and lies. And a spiritual young man is someone who has not only basic knowledge but strong conviction. But a spiritual father is one who knows him who is from the beginning. And the word know has all the intimacy of, of Cain knew his wife and she bore a son. It's the intimate knowledge. Uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Uh, that's, the, that's the affection part. And, and what you're doing in your ministry as you continually unfold the truth of the Word of God is you're making this connection between life and theology. You're... you're this theology that you're teaching them out of the Word of God is inseparable from life because it becomes their deposit of knowledge, it becomes the source of their conviction and the object of their affection. And you, you, you want a congregation that can say what David said, I love your law, I love your law. Or Psalm 19, it's more uh, precious to me than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb, Right? And I find from a personal standpoint that I can't really separate between loving the truth of God written and loving the truth of God incarnate. I don't, when I talk about loving Christ, the only Christ I know to love is the Christ revealed in Scripture. And I love Him not for some incidents in His life, but I love Him for His person and His work, which then ties that love completely to the revelation of both of those things in, on the pages of Holy Scripture. When I was going through Isaiah 53, it was kind of a unique experience for our church. I'd preached on it sometime, sometimes through the years, but never with much depth. But ten times through it, it was, it was such a euphoric experience of affection because I was re-embracing all these great truths just uh, one thing that you might file somewhere in your mind for future use. The clearest, the clearest presentation of the meaning of the death of Christ is not in the New Testament. The clearest presentation of the meaning of the death of Christ is in Isaiah. It's the first gospel. That's amazing. And I found that because I was so fully informed with the New Testament, I thought, ah, oh, this is just going to be a repeat version. I was absolutely astonished at the elements that were presented in the, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And it, be, it becomes for me um, a, a, a boiling over of my love for Christ that's bound up in who He is and what He has done. So if you're going to teach your people the Word of God, you will give them knowledge, you will help them develop convictions as they embrace and believe that knowledge, and eventually you will lead them to the mature position, which is affection, from spiritual children to spiritual young men to spiritual adults. That's why we go back to where we started. We do adult church. We have a deep affection for divine truth, even its subtleties even the deep things that escape the superficial. 
That's part of our conviction and that's part of our affection. 